Industrial Security Podcast with Andrew Ginter and Nate Nelson. Sponsored by Waterfall Security Solutions. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to the Industrial Security Podcast. My name is Nate Nelson. I'm sitting with Andrew Ginter, the Vice President of Industrial Security at Waterfall Security Solutions, who will introduce the subject and the guest of today's show. Andrew, how's it going? I'm very well. Thank you, Nate. Our guest today is Phil Dunbar. He is the Chief Technology Officer at Industrial Defender. Our topic is Industrial Defender Returns. What does that mean? Well, Industrial Defender was one of the pioneers in industrial security. I mean, I worked there before I joined Waterfall. I was the Chief Technology Officer at Industrial Defender for a number of years. I hired Phil. I mean, he was my VP Product Development at the time. Um, and, you know, the, the Industrial Defender was a going concern. They were acquired. And then, you know, over time, I saw the brand name disappear. And it's clear that the technology and the, the people were still there, but um, as of January, they're back. So this is the, the story uh, Phil's, Phil's here to tell us. Then let's listen in. Currently, you are the Chief Technology Officer with Industrial Defender. Industrial Defender's been around for a very long time. Can you talk about sort of how Industrial Defender fits into this, this uh, history of, of uh, industrial security? Well, Industrial Defender actually had its had its beginnings as a as a SCADA company. Um, it all started with RTAP, um, an ICS SCADA product that was being developed at HP. Then, during the big Hewlett Packard split, the SCADA business was spun off to Agilent, and then it was later sold to a company called Verano, which was one of the many supply chain integration startups just before the uh, the dot com bust. Verano became the business that was bought from Agilent, and subsequently the supply chain technology was mothballed. Um, I believe that was around 1999. Um, at that point, Verano started building uh, the world's first ICS SIEM and called it Industrial Defender. The SEM was developed, I believe, around 2002 and, and came to the market in, in 2004. After that, the, the company decided to rebrand the company name from Verano to Industrial Defender, and that was basically the, the birth of Industrial Defender. Industrial Defender grew organically, um, introducing new host intrusion detection agents, um, and some network intrusion detection systems. And through acquisition, they bought a, uh, a 24-7 ICS SOC, a security operations center. Uh, they acquired an ICS pen testing company and the security assessment business. And they were doing this to build uh, managed services and professional services offerings on, on top of their, their product offerings. Then around uh, 2010, Industrial Defender acquired Teltone, um, Teltone primarily for its secure dial-up gateways, which are used extensively for power substations in North America. Post 9-11, uh, the company started to focus on utilities customers with the emerging NERC SIP standards, which were driving cybersecurity compliance. As a result, we got quite a bit of interest from a number of suitors 
large companies looking at investing in OT security. We were eventually sold off to Lockheed Martin in 2014 and continued supporting and enhancing the, the, the product line. Lockheed Martin merged its entire IS and GS business, the integrated services and government systems business with Lidos. And at that point, Industrial Defender became part of Lidos Cyber. Um, this all occurred between 2014 and 20, 2018. But in the process, much of our focus on ICS security products waned. Um, the, we no longer had a dedicated sales staff and marketing support for ICS security products. Um, the company was started focusing more on IT security, and, and we kind of got lost in the noise. Um, when Capgemini purchased Lido Cyber last year, uh, Capgemini was primarily interested in professional services part of the business and not so much in the ICS cyber products. So at that time, it, it seemed to us that a spin-out or a carve-out was the only thing that would make sense. But it's important to understand that during this period of time, um, even though we lost focus in marketing and sales, uh, our parent companies continued to invest generously in our product development. And we did have a, a loyal installed base and um, got additional sales, but primarily through word of mouth. So let me add to to what Phil said there. I mean, I, I was working at Industrial Defender. Um, you know, we parted ways in about 2010. Um, you know, in the early days, there was there was uh, IT vendors who said, "Yeah, yeah, industrial security, we do that too," and they basically tried to sell their IT stuff into the industrial market. And you know, even then. There was a role for that. There's a lot of IT technology in the industrial market, but there's a lot of industrial stuff in the industrial market that the IT stuff really is is blind to. And so, you know, the 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 significance of, of Industrial Defender back in the day was that you know we were one of you know back in the day uh, we were one of the 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 very few companies that were focused on industrial applications. So I remember working on the Industrial Defender SEM, the Security Information and Event Manager. SEMs were a very big deal back in the early two thousands. The big enterprise SEMs, you know, had been built and had been sold for a couple of years. SEMs were a very big deal. So Industrial Defender tried to produce an industrial SEM. And back in the day, as I recall, there, you know, there was a, a, a bunch of sales, there was a bunch of installed base, but um, it seemed like uh, what industrial enterprises wanted to buy was enterprise SEMs that understood industrial also, but they wanted sort of one pane of glass. And, um, you know, Phil, he, he's talked about the SEM historically. To my knowledge, the SEM is not part of their, the, the Industrial Defender uh, offering anymore. It morphed into other technology. But back in the day, I mean, I was very proud of it. It was an industrial SEM. And in fact, the feedback we got on the SEM, I got feedback on the SEM from one of the, the uh, basically the chief technology officer of one of the big enterprise SEM vendors. You know, he looked at our stuff. I looked at his stuff. We, you know, we were talking partnership at the time. And his feedback was, you know, that's a very simple product. And he meant it in a good way. Um, this is something that people will actually understand. Whereas the enterprise SEM was, 
while it was powerful, big, complicated, um, it's what people wound up buying. But you know, one of the the uh, one of the the things industrial customers demand is a degree of simplicity, so that you can actually understand what's going on. Anyhow, so that's that's me rambling for a bit. Um, you know, this is why Industrial Defender was important in the day. It's because they came out of an industrial background, as Phil explained, and brought a deep knowledge of industrial systems to the question of securing industrial systems. That's a long history, but there's been some big changes in the in the last six months. Um, can you talk about about those changes? Yes, uh, we put together a business model to carve out the original industrial defender part of the business, the ICS OT security products part of the business and and the associated services with that. Um, We were able to find um, several private equity firms that were interested in, in investing. We picked one uh, Taleo Capital, primarily because of their expertise with uh, doing this kind of a carve-out from a larger company. And we were able to recruit uh, Jim Crowley as CEO. Uh, the reason Jim is important here is he's one of the top people in our industry and in, in marketing and sales. He's very successful and experienced. And also, he was with Industrial Defender back in 2014 at the time of the Lockheed Martin um, acquisition. So now we're, we've, we've finished the carve out. Uh, we've reincorporated as of January 1st and we're a private independent company. Um, we're in the process of putting investment into uh, marketing and sales for focus and continue on, on our, on our product uh, development roadmap. So you're back. I mean that's great in my books. You know the uh, the 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 world needs more more industrial security. Now you you mentioned you know what had been carved out and and made independent. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, what is Industrial Defender today? Industrial Defender has a suite of products for uh, ICS security and and compliance. Uh, this includes endpoint management. Network IDS, intrusion detection sensors, and monitoring and compliance and audit reporting. Um, some of the areas in endpoint management we, we deal with are asset discovery uh, and inventory, both hardware and software. Uh, we have host intrusion detection agents. Uh, we generate compliance events. We manage uh, baselines of your current operation, and uh, we manage policies. If you want to implement a NIST policy, for example, or an NEI policy or a NERC SIP policy, uh, we have templates for doing that. And when we find deviations from those policies, we generate exceptions. Um, We have a really broad, and this goes back to our our experience with industrial automation and our long history, we have a very broad native support for industrial devices. So we support hundreds of different um, industrial devices from a multitude of of vendors. More recently, we've been investing in vulnerability management uh, where we can collect the installed software on your equipment. And this can include everything from, uh, you know, the firmware revision of a switch 
or an industrial device to the uh, accumulated installed software in a Linux or Windows machine. Uh, we have a back-end server that's constantly scanning vulnerability databases and, uh, and vendor advisories, and we can match up your software or firmware revision level with uh, potential CVEs, um, you know, vulnerability advisory reports, and tell you what in your system is potentially vulnerable and should be patched. Can you give me some examples here on, of, of uh, you know, how people use all of this? Well, on the endpoint management side, I'll give an example where uh, we collect a lot of information on what's going on on your, on your host equipment. Uh, we had a, a European customer that had a SCADA system that was behaving strangely, and uh, the customer, SOC, thought that their SCADA server had been compromised by an external actor. It turned out that they, they found our tools the most useful because what they were able to do was they were able to scan the access logs to their various servers and found out that on this particular SCADA server, uh, someone had logged in, somebody was authorized to log in, but shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been on that authorization list and had misconfigured the server. Uh, we never found out whether that was malicious or just uh, maybe an oversight or incompetence, but um, the SOC was able to pin it down by searching through our access logs. So Nate, I left Industrial Defender just as the transition to the the policy manager product was starting. The uh, the a, a lot of the SEM technology was relevant to the policy manager space and and was being used in that new project. Um, and so you know everything in the policy manager space is is new for me, and so that's what I asked about next. The other thing that that caught my caught my ear in uh, in your description of the the endpoint protection you have here, you were talking about policies and compliance. Um, you know what what is that, and and you know can you give me an example of that as well? Yeah, let me give you examples of both. So many of our customers are utilities, and they're subject to NERC SIP compliance. And what they like about Industrial Defender is uh, once we're deployed, we're collecting data from pertinent data, pertinent to, to NERC SIP, you know, ports and services, password complexity rules, you know, all the, all the different aspect, aspects that you'd expect to see in a, in a NERC SIP. Uh, compliance audit. So we collect the rules, but we also have an extensive set of NERC SIP report templates. And we, we automatically populate the templates with real-time data and keep your reports up to date. So this is something once you automate it and get it, get it going, um, you have the on kind of the continuous ability to pass compliance audits. Um, and in fact, we've never had a customer fail an audit since they've been using those tools. It goes beyond NERC SIP. I mean, we have hundreds of different compliance templates. We have templates for NIST, NIS, and uh, NEI for, for the nuclear industry as well. We also have uh, the ability for you to create your own uh, custom reporting. So if you have your own internal policies, you can create reporting for that. 
and generate and schedule those reports on the fly. As far as policy is concerned, what you can also do is create a policy and that say you have a standard company policy or you derive a policy from NIST, then once the system is running, it'll tell you, it'll alert you to deviations from the policy. And then you can go through a work a workflow to correct those deficiencies. Andrew, I believe that's the first time on our show that somebody's mentioned policy management. Can you give us a little background on that concept? I'd love to. Um, policy managers are comparatively new in, in my understanding in the industrial security space. Um, you know, what do they do? Well, you know, imagine that you've you've written down in, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 pages of manual, you've written down a security policy. All users with this class of account shall, you know, log in and change their passwords at least every 90 days. It'll be this, uh, you know, this complex of password. Users with that kind of account, they only have to do it once a year. You've put a policy together saying what you need the organization to do in order to remain acceptably secure. You know, and the policy might include not just what users do, but, you know, the uh, the equipment, you know, this class of equipment shall be patched right up to the second. That class of equipment can apply security updates within 30 days of them being released. You've got all these policies. How do you know if you're doing what you say you ought to be doing? And this is what a policy manager does. It gathers a lot of information, compares it to uh, a machine version of the policy, and comes back and says, um, yes, you're complying with these 73 directives, but these four directives have, ex have exceptions. Three users didn't change their passwords, eight machines don't have the, the right version of software installed or the latest security updates, and so on. And now you can tell if what you've decided you need to do is actually being done. Phil also mentioned NERC-SIP. How would you apply this all to NERC-SIP? Well, NERC-SIP, um, is a, a long set of very specific rules. So you, you, know, you could imagine that the policy manager applies there, and it does. But with NERC-SIP, this is even more important because when you get audited for NERC, um, for SIP, the auditor shows up at your site, or an audit team more likely shows up at your site, they're not gonna go into your server room and start tracing cables. That's not what they do. They're not going to log into your machines and say, do you have the latest security updates? They're going to look at your record keeping. And so it's not enough at a NERC SIP compliant site. It's not enough to do what the policy says. You have to prove that you've done what the policy says. If you're doing it manually, I mean, how can you, I mean, let's say you, you, you have, uh, every time when someone changes a password, you get uh, a log entry somewhere. Um, for certain kinds of machines, but other kinds of machines, you know, PLCs might not produce log entries. So now you've got a policy, you might be doing the policy. How do you know you've done the policy? Well, you might manually grab up the log entries and put them into a report once a month. You might um, ask people when they change their passwords on the PLCs to send you email. And then you'll have to go through the email every month or every three months and ask the question, has everyone who Set, who has to change the password sent me an email saying they've changed their passwords. And, you know, if four people didn't, you've got to send them email back. You've got to produce a report that says, I scanned my email and these four people were, were, were not in compliance. And so they fixed it three days later. It's a lot 
of labor. And if you can press a button and get these reports automatically and say to the auditors, here you go, here's the history of compliance. Anything you want to ask about, press the button, here's the report. A, it, you know, the auditors are delighted because it makes their job much easier. But the business is delighted because you didn't have to do all of that paperwork manually. So when you're talking about these, these, this endpoint management function, it sounds like you have, I think, what's called active technology. It's stuff that's installed on the Windows or Linux hosts. It's stuff that connects to the PLCs and asks them questions to figure out what firmware version they have. Do you get, you know, ha have I got that right? And, and do you get pushback from end users or from the vendors about this, you know, this sort of extra stuff that's happening inside the, uh, the, the control system? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, some plan operators are very wary about um, you contacting their industrial equipment, in particular PLCs. So we'll, we will do that. We'll query a PLC. Uh, we can use SIP commands. Also, a lot of PLCs and other controllers have embedded web pages that yield quite a bit of information. So we can go into it on HTTP or HTTPS and scrape the results. I know this is viewed as potentially disruptive, but since I come from a PLC design background, um, I think the risk is minimal if it exists at all because these machines are designed to read inputs, process logic, and then perform the outputs. And then this is done in a cyclical way. And then there's a time slice in there for communications. Um, the reading inputs, processing logic, generating outputs has priority. So it's only going to do the additional communications time time slice as part of a de deterministic cycle. But having said that, since um, customers are concerned about that, we do both. We do passive monitoring and active monitoring, and we do something in between where we could send out uh, the kind of broadcast that something like RS Links would send out to Rockwell PCs that says, basically, identify yourself on the network. Uh, we may send out a, a, a ping broadcast like that maybe once a day and then get the information. I mean, the, the advantage of active monitoring is you can get a lot more information. There's, it's limited what you can get over the wire. And also with passive monitoring, if you don't prompt the device, there's a lot of information it has no reason to put on the wire. So you could go for months and months and months and not pick up what the firmware revision is on that device. So I think the only answer is, uh, you know, good active monitoring. Installed agents work very well on servers, and and ours are throttled to use up very little, very little device uh, system resources. Uh, remote access, so we might SSH into a switch to collect information from that. So remote active monitoring, uh, installed agent active monitoring passive monitoring and passive monitoring with, uh, with an occasional broadcast. In practice, we prefer primarily to do active monitoring and we do get pushback from customers that don't want you contacting some of their industrial devices. And this is what prompted us to get into network sniffing um, 
attaching to a, to a mirror port on a switch and just looking passively at the, at the network traffic. But then we've talked to customers who thought that passive monitoring was a be-all and end-all and then realized it's very limited the kind of information you can get from passive monitoring. So now they're warming up a little bit to, you know, what's the what's the least intrusive way we can get additional information other than just from passive monitoring. And I think that's what, what prompted um, some vendors to go to assisted passive monitoring and then where possible to active monitoring and even installing agents. Andrew, maybe I missed it in his answer, but by passive monitoring, does Phil mean automated? Uh, no, no. Um, passive is where you're watching every message on the network, but you're never putting a message on the network yourself. So generally, you're looking at the messages on the network either through a, a tap which is really looking at the messages on a single wire, or you're looking at a span port or a mirror port where the switch is sending you uh, some or all of the messages that everybody exchanges uh, on the network. So you can, you can basically you can see, but not, uh, you know, you're, you're not actually doing anything on the network. Active scanning is, is what he's talking about as being superior in terms of the the data that it acquires. Active scanning is not just putting a message or two on the network. It is sending messages to machines saying, can you tell me what version of firmware you have installed? Which, you know, is a pretty benign thing to do to a Windows box nowadays. You know, the, the CPUs have, uh, have got so much spare capacity, they, they got entire cores sitting idle waiting for, for <laughs> questions like this to try and do something useful. But if you send that message to a PLC, a programmable logic controller, that's, con you know, every every 10 milliseconds has to hit its loop and you know read all its inputs calculate all its outputs push all the outputs or the machine malfunctions now the question you know that that Phil is addressing is can you do that without interfering with the tight time constraints these these PLCs operate under and his answer was yes it was in terms of time slices these PLCs do not use sort of the 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 laissez faire the lackadaisical scheduling that conventional Windows and Linux and even Android phones use. They use hard real-time scheduling. The, the function that needs 10 milliseconds, uh, you know, th sorry, that more likely needs, you know, 9 milliseconds every 10 milliseconds, that function is scheduled every 10 milliseconds without fail. It runs for nine milliseconds, and you got a one millisecond time slice left over. What are you going to do with it? You're going to fire up the communication software and say, try and answer a message if we've been sent one. And a millisecond later, stop that software and say, hold on, I need to go do something important and do your nine millisecond scan again. So that's that's a crude example, but it, it, it means the, the PLCs are getting their job done. And any leftover processing, answering questions about you know firmware revisions, are happening as a, a very low priority background task that is very much designed not to interfere with the, the primary function. You also talked about, about network monitoring. What, what have you got there? Well, there's a couple of things we do with network monitoring. Uh, we have a vast library of signatures we're looking for um, that get updated on a regular basis. Uh, this is on our network intrusion detection system which is an appliance we sell as part of the uh, part of the product hierarchy. So that's the that's one of the things we do. 
we do deep packet inspection, and this is centered around industrial protocols. So we support deep packet inspection for the major protocols so that if we see something that's suspect, we can alert you on that. I can give you an example of that. Uh, I was at a power generation plant recently that installed our, our, our NIDS, our Network Intrusion Detection System. And right off the bat, we were seeing that we were seeing the status of their PLCs on the wire. I mean, a lot of this information, these are Rockwell PLCs. It's published uh, on the wire using the SIP protocol. And we noticed a couple of things. One is that they had a couple of PLCs, maybe 20% of their PLCs had a physical switch in the REM position. This is the remote position. If you leave a Rockwell PLC in the remote switch position, that allows somebody to make changes to the PLC remotely. Normally, a system integrator comes in and they put the PLCs in the remote mode. They hook up a laptop. They do firmware upgrades. They do logic changes, configuration upgrades. Once they're happy with that and they've proven that out, then they put it back in the run position and they go away. The plan operator didn't realize that the SEI was doing this, and he said that gives them some really good ammunition to go back to the SI and say, you know, we're watching what you're doing. You better put those in run mode after you're done with with the uh, with maintenance. Um, the other thing we picked up is the firmware revision on their PLCs and found that a number of PLCs have firmware revisions with uh, with vulnerabilities reported against them. So. Um, we could also make a rep recommendation to the plan operator to have his SI um, upgrade the firmware in those devices during the next maintenance cycle. In general, what we look for on the wire and packet inspection is maintenance operations like start stops, logic changes, logic downloads, firmware downloads. Um, these things are can be potentially nefarious can be used in, in malicious ways. I mean, at a minimum, you could issue a stop command as a de denial of service, but you could also spoof logic and do even, even more damage than that. In these plants, there's usually a short maintenance window, maybe uh, one week out of the year where these operations are taking place. During normal operations, you shouldn't be seeing PLC maintenance operations like starts and stops and logic changes. So that's the kind of thing we want to collect and alert on. Admittedly, I, I kind of lost my footing on that last answer there from Phil. Um, he started using a lot of acronyms and I don't know. Uh, can you help me explain what he was just talking about? Sure. I mean, uh, the, the, the heart of the thing that, that Phil's talking about here is a network intrusion detection system, uh, NIDS, he called it. Um, and he's talking about a, a signature-based function in the NIDS. And a, a signature is a rule. It's like a, an antivirus signature. What's an antivirus signature? It's a rule that says when you see one of these and one of those and one of those, that's bad. So the, the, the NIDS appliance is looking at a, uh, a mirror port. It's seeing all the packets and it's matching them against rules. And if you see one of these packets and then one of those packets, that's an attack signature, you raise an alert. But uh, the point that, that Phil was making sort of towards the end is that when you're putting these signatures together, it's not just 
known attack patterns that you want in these signatures. Um, what they've got in their signatures for a lot of these industrial devices is anything that's unusual. So he talked about a, a remote programming switch. You know, he talked about start messages, stop messages, logic download uh, messages. None of those functions should be happening sort of normally in a normally running system. You want alerts on those things. So, you know, here's an example. Let's say you're, you're in the, the security operations center and you get an alert that says uh, somebody just sent a stop message and then a restart message to a PLC. And, uh, you know, then downloaded a bunch of, uh, of new firmware. You know, what's, what's that SOC analyst going to do? Well, they're going to bring up their system and say, do I have any work orders open for that part of the industrial process? And, you know, the answer is either going to be yes. Okay, then I expect to see this message, you know, dismiss it, you know, on to my next task. Or the answer is no, in which case you pick up the phone and you call the site and you say, look, it looks like somebody is reprogramming your X, Y, or Z, but they don't have a work order open for it. And they go and, you know, tap people on the shoulder and say, what's going on? And, you know, someone says mea culpa and they open a work order and they fix it. Or nobody's doing it. And now you scratch your head and go, that's not good. And you open up uh, a security incident response process because someone's in there reprogramming your PLCs and it's none of your people. So this is the the the, the point here is that intrusion detection uh, technology looks at the packets, applies rules. And some of the rules are not just known attack patterns, but anything that's unusual that really has no business happening on a running system. Yeah, Andrew, that makes sense. But when we talk about intrusion detection like this, um, my thought is as important and significant as, as these alerts are, as you just said, um, I have an antivirus program on my computer and it sends me a lot of notifications. Whenever I'm on a new app that my microphone is accessed or my camera is accessed, it has this glitch where Microsoft Edge just knocks it all out of whack. Um, and because... I get so many notifications from my antivirus program. My thought generally is that if I get a new one that actually really matters, I might just click the little X button because that's what I've gotten in the habit of doing. So my question to you, I suppose, is if we're doing alerts for starting and stopping processes and everything that, that Phil just mentioned, is there a risk that the system may be oversensitive to the point where the human operators um, might overlook a real problem and not be as dutifully responsive as you just described there? This is a real problem. Um, the it, it's fundamentally it's uh, we you know we, I think we talked about it in a previous episode. It's the question of sensitivity. It's balancing false alarms versus missed attacks, or in the, the parlance of the industry, false positives versus false negatives. Uh, so for example, um, you know, you might have, uh, I don't know, a, uh, a PLC that is a little bit sick and is slowing down in terms of its responses. Um, and you know, you're, the, the operator is seeing timeouts, or it might be that you have a, a device that, um, you know, you've you've lost a, a wide area network connection to, and again, your the communications is timing out, and the operator is trying to figure out how can I get information from the device back. The operator might press a button that sends a stop and a start command to the device to restart it, and hopefully clear whatever problem was there. The the operator might send two or three of these things. You know, so you know. 
to your to your question, how do you know which alerts are real and which are not? Um, in a sense, this is not the problem of the intrusion detection system. Uh, this is the problem of the SEM. The SEM is getting probably thousands or even hundreds of thousands of log entries. You can call them alerts if you want from all over the enterprise and is integrating them and trying to make sense out of them and trying to figure out what's real. What do I, what do I percolate to the top of the priority list so that the, the, the SOC analyst looks into and what is less important. And this is, you know, this, this process of distinguishing and prioritizing alerts is one of the ways that SEM vendors compete with each other. They, you know, each of them boasts of having the, the best of these ways. So it is a real problem. Um, and, you know, it's a problem that a lot of money and efforts being invested into. I, I don't know that there's a, 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 you know, a known solution that everyone's using. Uh, all of these SEM vendors are out there inventing their own algorithms, inventing their own machine learning, their own artificial intelligence, and competing with each other in, in this arena. So you've talked about a lot of bits and pieces here. Um, do you pull this all together? Have you got sort of a, a high-level um, interface to all this? Yes. At the top level of the system is an appliance we call the automated systems, Automation Systems Manager. And this is where we consolidate all the normalized data we collect from the network infrastructure. So the... The product is, uh, in general, Industrial Defender is uh, a multi-tier hierarchy of devices collecting information from hosts directly or passively through an intrusion detection sensor. It all gets fed up into the top-level automation systems manager, and this hosts a database, file stores, and um, has a universe interface, a pane of glass where you can start off with a dashboard and then drill down into reporting or event searching or vulnerability monitoring or a variety of other different uh, modules within that, within that application. You've been talking about products. I know that in the old days, at least, Industrial Defender was, was heavy on services as well. Do, do you still do services? Yes, we do. We have two service departments. One is the, the deployment services. So generally speaking, customers have us deploy our systems on site. Um, this is a, a very experienced group. They've got a tremendous amount of, of field experience at customer sites. They're well trusted. Uh, they also have international experience. We're doing quite a bit of work in the Middle East and Europe um, in addition to North America. So deployment, they'll go on site. It takes about a week to deploy our product. And then they can come back periodically to do sustaining maintenance. They can come back on site to do training and that sort of thing. Uh, the other group is the customer support group. Uh, they're available to give support uh, remotely, either through email or on the phone. So those are the, uh, the two services departments we have right now. Now, I believe that you mentioned earlier that, that while you guys were doing these deployment services, you were also selling control systems technology. Were there any cases in which your teams were applying uh, security solutions to your own control systems machines? Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, a lot of our early security customers were 
customers who already trusted us on the control system side. Why do you ask? Yeah, that's that's interesting because I'm wondering, could it be construed as negative if the same vendor is supplying control systems as well as providing the security of those control systems? Um, the reason I ask is because I could see that being very convenient on some level. On the other hand, if you have multiple vendors uh, who each specialize in their own particular lane, so you have the folks who supply the control machines and the folks who do security on those control machines, um, specialization is a very potent force. Um, the security people may be more motivated to um, keep to be a check on the control systems provided by the other vendor where the vendor themselves put in that position may not be, you know, they may know their systems better, but will they be as motivated to act as a check on their own machines? This is a, a, a question that I think, um, what's the right word? It, it, it does not have, there's, there's no consensus in the industry. Um, let me back up away from, from security just a moment and, and I'll come back to it. But um, more generally, um, you know, if you're building a brand new natural gas fired power plant, you know, gas turbine power plant, um, you might well go to GE or Siemens or whoever and say, please build me this power plant. Here's the land, go. And they will clear the land, they will build the buildings, they will, they will build the gas turbine, they will transport the turbine to site, they will install the turbine, they will instrument the whole thing, they will configure all of the instrumentation, they will put security in place, they will connect the security to their cloud security center, they will start monitoring the system, they'll, you know, they'll do everything but operate it remotely, and I don't know, they might even do that nowadays. One vendor, top to bottom. As the plant ages, though, you might start, uh, you know, being more cost conscious because you don't have a capital budget anymore. You might, you might, uh, you know, see um, a new product come out that's, you know, brand new that Siemens doesn't have or, you know, your GE or your vendor doesn't have. You start doing add-ons. And, you know, it, it gets even worse. If you're in a big company and you have like 70 power plants, well, you probably have, you know, 15 different vendors involved you a bunch of your plants the older ones especially are mixes of vendors you might try and standardize but you just can't and so there's a constant tension between um all one vendor all the eggs in one basket thoroughly integrated because the vendor knows how to make all of their stuff work with their own stuff really really well versus best of breed and now you're struggling with a bit of integration because maybe these best of breed things don't quite talk to each other. Um, but best of breed means specialization on the security side as well. So, you know, it's it's not a question that has an answer. And the bigger the organization, the less likely it is that all of your sites are going to be the same. It's almost certain, no matter how hard you try to standardize, that your sites are going to be all over the place. This is This is the nature of the beast on the industrial side. So we've been talking about about you know industrial security for a while here. I mean this this makes sense, but your history was producing and selling uh, you know some very powerful uh, a very powerful control system product. Uh, you've got you know a, a widely used uh, dial-up product historically. Is that still part of Industrial Defender going forward? Yes, absolutely. The um, RTAP SCADA product is. Uh 
has a very devoted customer base. It's a, it's a very stable, high-performance product, and it has the advantage that it can be deployed on uh, Windows systems, Linux systems, and some of the legacy uh, Unix systems are still supported, like uh, HP UX, AIX, and Solaris. We had our origins in industrial control, and so we still have a very knowledgeable staff that comes from industrial control orient, um, industrial control orientation. So that gives us a depth of knowledge I think some of our competitors don't necessarily have. Uh, the dial-up gateways are still widely used. I mean, most substations are dial-up. They're not internet connected. Uh, the secure dial-up gateway is substation hardened and uh, it kind of dovetailed very nicely when we started getting into NERC SIP compliance and uh, focusing on North American utilities. So in, in addition to our industrial defender products, we have the, uh, the Teltone gateway. So Nate, on a personal note, um, you know, it's nice to hear that some of the code that I wrote personally is, is still running out there. Uh, you know, there was a time when I managed the the RTAP development team. There was a time when I wrote code for the RTAP product. Um, pretty much everything else, I'm pretty sure, uh, that I wrote, you know, earlier in my career has been retired. You know, years of my life have been invested in code that, that no longer exists. So, you know, it's nice to know that something that I wrote is still out there, still running, still running in important applications. It's, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it makes me feel a little bit better about the, the, the years I spent uh, writing code in, in that space. All right, Andrew. I don't want to rain on your parade here. That was a very cute sentiment. But could it be construed as a negative thing that the same code you would have written you know, over a decade ago is, is still in use? I don't really use Windows XP anymore. Um, that's a good question. You see, I'd, I'd never asked that question. Um, let me think for a second. There's two sides to the coin. Um, on the one hand, you're right. Um, you know, uh, the world evolves and, uh, you know, the, the latest and greatest control system products look very little like the, the, the stuff that I worked on. The, the latest stuff is all Java and it's all dynamically loadable code and it's, it's objects and modules and, um, so that's, you know, I think that's your point. The other side of the coin is that if you have a very important physical process, a very important system of any sort that you really need to keep running and you really need to be predictable, change is the enemy of reliability. Uh, if the lights go out, if, you know, the oil stops flowing in the pipeline for any length of time, that's a very bad thing. So, um... That's a fancy way of saying, I don't know. Fair enough. So we like to leave our guests with the last word. Um, have you got a, a thought you'd like to leave with our listeners? Yes. Um, something I've been thinking about quite a bit recently, well, recently over the past couple of months. We, and I mean by we, I mean the, the ICS security community in general, just not where I, not just where I work. Uh, we keep adding to our spectrum of collected information. You know, we collect more and more information on the endpoint, the network infrastructure, 
what's going on in the network itself, configuration data, event data, vulnerability data, threat data, anomalies, baseline deviations, I could go on and on. Um, and we're going to continue to add to this collection capability. I mean, we're, we're looking quite a bit at link layer protocols now, um, starting with the uh, Profibus discovery and configuration protocol, which is a link layer protocol. There's quite a bit of damage you can do if you're, if you're putting packets out at that layer um, in the sense that you can reconfigure a PLC and cause a DOS. Um, more recently, the, uh, it, was, it was noted that the Cisco's discovery protocol, which is a link layer protocol, uh, has some vulnerabilities that can cause you to penetrate between different network, network segments, kind of reducing the, uh, the effectiveness of segmented networks in OT. We'd like to look at user behavior indicators. Anomalies on user behavior, this may not just include OT data, but maybe physical access to various areas and that sort of thing, collect information on users and, and, and how things are deviating. Kind of a side interest of mine, aside, or side channels. I've been talking to people and reading up about RF, you know, radio frequency side channels, EMF side channels, even acoustic side channels. There was some work done at IBM where they discussed um, picking up acoustic signals, uh, apparently on printed circuit boards, the, uh, the ceramic capacitors vibrate and send out a, uh, an acoustic signal um, you can use these to deduce what's going on inside the CPU and e even use that to, uh, to leak information. So now I think we need to put more focus on how the end user is going to assimilate and digest all that stuff. Uh, what can we do as a vendor to distill, digest, and simplify this wealth of data to the point that it's understandable and actionable without a team of 24-7 experts? Um, what analytical tools, visual tools, uh, what can we do about risk scoring? That's a, a big effort we're putting time into right now. Um, anything we can do to provide clarity, clarity at a glance. Um, there is, after all, a severe workflow, workforce shortage of cybersecurity professionals, especially in the domain of ICS cybersecurity. So basically, the question is, how can we do more? How can we provide more with less? So I have to agree with, uh, with the last comment. Um, you know, every industry is uh, automating. The industrial security industry is, is no exception. The more, uh, you know, data we produce, the more we need automation, the more security that we can automate, the more we can take our, you know, in short supply experts and focus them on higher value tasks like dealing with the more sophisticated of attacks. Though is it not easier to beat a bot than a human? It can be easier to beat a bot than a human unless the human has to look at 100,000 alerts, in which case you kind of need a bot. Well, on that note, let's, uh, let's wrap things up here. Thanks to Phil Dunbar for speaking with you, Andrew. And as always, thank you, Andrew, for speaking with me. My pleasure. Always, always a pleasure, Nate. This has been Waterfall's Industrial Security Podcast. Thanks to everybody who's listening. Mm -hmm.